Finally, it seems that recognition of the need to reduce our carbon footprint has entered the mainstream. And so now the hard work really begins and perhaps one of the biggest challenges we face is bringing our built environment up to scratch. Seven star energy ratings are now a thing in new homes and commercial buildings, but what about existing buildings? Should we be upgrading them? How do we upgrade them? And who is responsible? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Today, we're joined by Sarah Wilkinson, Professor of Sustainable Property at UTS. Sarah has recently co-authored a radical book aimed to inject new insight and urgency into the conversation on the retrofitting of commercial and residential buildings in the face of the climate emergency. It's about the why the how and who should take the lead in revolutionising buildings in the face of serious climate change and social change. And what we'll discover is that buildings contribute very significantly to the output of carbon, particularly here in Australia, where the stock is old, but it's not neither feasible nor desirable to demolish the whole lot and start again. So if existing buildings cannot be replaced in the short term by zero carbon stock, how do we retrofit and adapt to the existing stock? Because it's pretty critical. Now, the challenge is how to do it in a limited time frame and when there are multiple stakeholders, often with competing interests. So thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. It's a really important conversation and we're keen to learn how we can help conquer the complexity of this task. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm uh, really excited to have this conversation with you. Sarah, I mean, it's, it's hard to know where to start because it's such a big conversation, right? I mean, I guess it's trying to, I guess, educate ourselves on on how big the problem is and, and where the problem really is. I mean, if you had to sort of talk through it in an Australia context, and maybe in terms of residential rather than commercials, are we really missing the point if we're focusing on maybe making the next, you know, 100 or 200,000 properties we build each year to be energy efficient if the other 10, 11 million are, are really lagging? Is that sort of the, the crux of the issue? And are we should be focusing on them rather than the, just making sure the new building I sort of built well, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the stark statistics, if you like, is yeah. that typically in any year, we only add about between 1% and 2% to the total stock yeah. of buildings. So even if we have an out-and-out building boom, we're only adding about 2% to the total stock of buildings. So as you rightly say, most of it's here already. Much of it predates any concern about climate change, energy efficiency and sustainability. So we do have a stock of largely poorly performing, poorly maintained perhaps uh, buildings. And we've been in a situation where energy costs haven't historically been very high. And so it's been affordable. So we could afford to heat and cool inefficient buildings. We're now finding, obviously, in the current economic climate that energy costs are really going up, as well as mortgages and other costs. And now people are really sort of thinking about how they can perhaps save energy to reduce their bills. But the plus side of that is, of course, you're emitting less carbon. 
So is that the real reason why we are becoming more aware because it's finally hitting our hip pockets? That's probably one of the big factors, which is great. I mean, I think we've got a combination of things. I think, as you were saying, we last sort of caught up in 2019. And I think Greta Thunberg was sort of riding a crest of popularity. And she was getting very cranky about the lack of action that had occurred globally. And that was also resonating with a lot of young people here. And then, of course, COVID came along and really sucked all the oxygen out of the room. There has been a bit of a sea change. I think there's so much evidence now. People can't really ignore it or deny it. So there is acceptance that we're not very efficient, that we need to change because of the climate. But, you know, obviously in the short term, the cost of energy is also accelerating that. I've always said it's always easier to save a dollar than earn a dollar, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Just on that, is that the main way in which buildings are inefficient in the heating and the cooling? It is, obviously. Most of the energy consumed is during the life cycle of the building, the operational phase, you know, which obviously it varies. Some buildings may last decades, other buildings last centuries, and they don't have a fixed use-by date. You know, it really depends on the demand, the location, the flexibility of the building to accommodate different uses over time. There are some buildings that um, some building materials involve a lot of energy in construction. So concrete is an example that uses a lot of energy in extraction, manufacturing, transportation, but is quite durable. So depending on the life of the building, it could actually work out to be not too bad. But um, that's got high embodied energy, whereas more natural materials, say like timber, or possibly hempcrete as an alternative to concrete, they have lower embodied carbon in them. Your construction carbon footprint is lower with depending on the materials you select. But then the longevity of the building can yep. sort of offset or the inability of certain materials to help maintain temperatures yeah. Yeah. can offset, Pl- right? Yeah, absolutely. Plus the design. So, for example, if you've got a design that works with the site, you might choose to have quite small windows or one elevation and larger openings on another. But then you've obviously got people's taste as well. And, you know, historically... We didn't have to worry about climate change and energy use. As we were saying, the cost was fairly low. So we were able to have these houses with a lot of glazing, which would enable us to have fabulous views from the building, but were very inefficient. And so there's also taste, people's taste to adjust as well. I could almost argue with the view thing is that if you can afford the view, you possibly would just say, I don't care about the energy bills. (laughs) quite possibly quite possibly (laughs) but I think I mean the good news is we can retrofit so we can sort of make the buildings more efficient that's the good news obviously if it wasn't optimized for the site in the first place that's still going to be a bit of a band-aid rather than the ideal solution right the thing is because it's quite commonly understood that it's cheaper to demolish a house and rebuild from scratch than to renovate and obviously you could knock down an old inefficient house and put a new seven-star energy efficient house or eight-star even now that's been talked about is that approach really better or worse for the environment because the problem is when you're throwing out stuff what do you do 
with the waste. And I always wonder about that. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's a whole other area of research and innovation at the moment is the circular economy, is looking at construction waste and obviously waste from demolition is where things can be reused and repurposed. One of the examples I give, my father was born just before World War II, so he grew up with all that World War II austerity. He was a boat builder. He did a seven-year boat building apprenticeship and there was wasn't much he couldn't do with timber. Of course, fiberglass came along and so um, he switched from boat building to construction. And I remember as a teenager, they were doing a retrofit of the central line tube station at Bond Street Station, Tottenham Court Road Station and Oxford Circus Station. And they were stripping out Victorian ticketing booths. So these were teak ticketing booths. Mm. And um, he had a chat with the uh, contractors and said, do you mind if I take that? And they said, no, no problem. So it all came home and it went into the boat he was building. (laughs) That's a nice... (laughs) For use. <laughs> yeah, it is. But, you know, this was the thing. He had the skills and it was fairly simple to disassemble mm. and then repurpose, whereas a lot of our materials now are composites. So they're very complex. They might be a combination of plastic and metal and other materials. So actually pulling them apart is more difficult. Plus apprenticeships now tend to be much shorter mm. and perhaps not quite as extensive. He grew up with that make to amend mindset after yep. World War Two. For him, it was a no-brainer. With the retrofitting of buildings, and I guess at what point does it get triggered? You know, it does it get triggered because you say, right, well, the energy costs are going up, so we have to make this building efficient, or does it get triggered at the point of, well, the house is outdated if we are talking residential, and so therefore we need to renovate it, and in that process we're going to put in place some more efficient building materials or overhangs or, or insulation or whatever it is that we're going to do. Where do we start with all of this? Yeah, I think everybody is slightly different. They've got sort of a, a different physical building and condition again you might have exactly the same building design but if one's in very poor condition to the other you'd probably choose different retrofit options depending on what you want to do because again I think what's happened for many people is housing has become commoditized in Mm. that we're very interested in its capital value and appreciation of value so we want to maximize the return on investment and all that sort of thing So you might choose to do things that are quite visible. So you might put, say, solar panels on your building because everybody can then see you've got solar panels, so your energy bills should be smaller, whereas you can't see insulation in the roof or the walls. That might actually be a better return on investment for the cost and then the lowering of... I mean, the other thing, of course, is behaviour. I've done a couple of uh, papers that we've sort of titled Behave Yourself because. When you learn to drive a car, you have to do 120 hours of supervised instruction. Then you have to take a test. And only when you've um, satisfied the person who's doing the test that you're safe do you get a license to drive. Nobody really ever teaches anybody how to operate a house. <laughs> and I've, I've, this is true story. I have been in share houses with people who are totally committed to you know, climate change and sustainability, but would put air conditioning on with windows open. <laughs> it's like, oh, 
do that. <laughs> Isn't do it that. just like the common sense test? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they were so genuinely passionate, but they, they hadn't realised that um, before you switch on the air conditioning, you've got to shut everything and make sure it's well sealed because otherwise you're just trying to cool the planet. <laughs> With your book, did you... Where did you sort of land through your research around the around the the globe? I guess you probably would have looked globally at best practice. I mean, around yeah. government sort of mandating retrofitting buildings and yep. you're almost like a pool compliance certificate. You know, you're building your your house needs to be compliant in terms of a certain standard of you know insulation or heating or, or something like that. Yeah. Where where it's you know the sort of the stick versus sort of the carrot. Like where do we Absolutely. sort of force society? make yeah. the change yes people can see the cost going up in their energy bills etc like that but unless people are forced to do things my belief is that they probably won't right life just gets busy and they go to things that are more fun to do so where did you land with yeah. what's, what's the best way to approach this? yeah i mean that's really interesting and um again the the trouble with the residential sector is mostly you have got hundreds of thousands of individual owners to yeah convince whereas in the commercial property sector you've got fewer owners who are professionally qualified and what they're wanting to do is to minimize risks they don't want to be stuck with stranded assets that are seen as energy guzzlers and out of date and don't go near there and also in the commercial sector we tend to have classifications of building quality so in the office sector in Australia, for example, premium is the best, you know, the most expensive to rent, the most prestigious to occupy. And that tends to be the ones with the rating tools, the classifications. So with the housing market, it is it is a challenge. I mean, they have had schemes where you could get a subsidy for fitting solar panels insulation and again these have happened all over the place and they tend to work for certain sectors so as you say not everybody you know has it as the priority but some people will take advantage of that and again what we've found with some recent research we've done in western sydney on new housing actually this was sustainable housing with ground source heat pumps in western sydney those properties actually got a premium of about 7% which was about $55,000 per property for their sustainability features yeah, this is really interesting. I was going to ask you about this because um, until recently, all I could come across was a study done in America, which was by a developer, which claimed that consumers were paying prepared to pay more for higher energy rating homes. And so now you're starting to put some real numbers around here. How is that communicated to the consumers? And what were the elements in that? Because from what I've observed thus far, I'm not sure that many people putting their head in their pocket to pay more for it. It's a lot of lip service being paid. Yeah. And so that That's why we've had to legislate to have higher standards for developers because if they can't see that they're going to get their money back, why would they bother? So you're saying that now that they're starting to see some evidence that it is is transpiring. Yeah, that's right. And so certain developers are wanting to position them as being, you know, sustainable and good stewards and citizens and uh, building quality housing sort of thing. And it's interesting because... In that particular project, we looked at the commerciality, but other colleagues looked at um, community engagement and they looked at 
other sustainability behaviors and features. What we actually found, a lot of the people that bought into that development, they liked the community aspects. It was a repurposed golf course that had been abandoned. So it had a number of nice water features. Plus, it was well landscaped with mature trees. So it wasn't one of those greenfield sites where it was totally bleak. Denuded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing is is fashion and, and um, the grey rooftops, you know, is um, a colour that really attracts heat. So you have to um, spend more money to cool those buildings down because they absorb heat. Whereas if they were a lighter colour, you wouldn't have that, but then it's an aesthetic. And, you know, we tend to get sucked in by offerings and, you know. It's education. Like, for instance, when I renovated my house and I finished it beginning of 2020 and I made certain decisions around my knowledge of making my house more energy efficient, right? So, like, mm. for instance, I put an extra opening window to encourage cross-flow ventilation because, yes. you know, I, I learned and it was a miracle to me. I always <laughs> knew about the air conditioning and the window shut, but I didn't know that breezes don't go around corners. And we interviewed Cecilia Cecilia Weldon um, oh, yes, I know some that. time ago yeah. and, and she said that and went, ding, that just stuck in my head. <laughs> yeah. So we did that and I got certain overhangs on the northern side, et cetera, et cetera. So there's ways in which we'll mechanically, if you like, keep the property cooler and the front section has got a lighter colour bond roof, but the back section has, you know, it's monument, that that nice yeah. dark one that's fashionable. And it didn't occur to me. And obviously yeah. it didn't, it wasn't on, and I told my architect I, I want it as energy efficient as possible. Yeah. And so it, it's an obviously an education thing, isn't it? I mean, I'm uh, all ears and I missed yeah, that one. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, um, with going back to the book, we finished the book with this kind of manifesto for the future and um, yeah. I was just having a look at it before speaking to you now and uh, we kind of identified four areas of concern and one of them was education you know we need to educate kids in school and in universities one of the things I'm really thinking is if we can get the department for education to adopt green technologies sustainable technologies in schools i think the kids will grow up seeing solar panels double glazing secondary glazing energy efficient features and behaviors and for them it won't be alien it's like well we had that at school plus i think a lot of young people are going to get climate change anxiety, you know. Well, you do, don't they? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Greta is a great example of that. And they get cranky and you can understand it because they're sort of saying, you've known about this for decades now and time's running out. The other thing I think um, is if you look back again at the older stock, because we didn't have the sophisticated mechanical services to cool and heat buildings we had to work with the climate so that's going back to your cross ventilation mm. thing you know and if you look at Mediterranean um, housing design for example they had big overhanging areas that kept the direct heat off the wall of the building and the window openings and then they had sort of internal courtyards with a bit of water to naturally sort of cool and keep the air sort of reasonably moist rather than completely dry. <laughs> and they work, yeah, they work with the climate, you know, because that, that's all they could do. <laughs> 
Whereas we were populated in this country by the English who <laughs> built Victorian oh, terraces. <laughs> yeah. do, do you think that we should um, target, like rather than so there's 10 million places, we should sort of target, I guess, the more, uh, the 80-20 rule, right? Like where could we get the real best bang for buck? Like maybe we, we leave the certain part of the population that are thinking about doing renovations mm. and maybe we do a sort of encourage them to go in that direction, but we don't mandate it. But maybe we say to apartment buildings or strata, like, you know, we can say that if your building's older than maybe even yeah. a couple of years old, we should really try to target. Is that sort of the best way to sort of, if you lift the sort of regulation around it, I mean, but they've always this pop, there's been policies for insulation. That was a bit of a, uh, a fraud sort of fest back 10 years ago from uh, what I've read. Um, mm. I mean, in the UK, I'm just looking here, you know, UK overnight sort of introduced a new insulation benefit for people there. I mean, yeah. do we just sort of mandate the apartment buildings, for example, and then say, let's have a good crack at that over the next five years and then yeah. all the new buildings and then maybe we go to smaller ones after that? The thing we have in Australia is I think we've got seven different climate zones for a start. So in some areas you've got sort of a, tr a tropical climate and you've got you're dealing with that in climate, you know, whereas down in Tasmania or in the uh, Victorian Alps or wherever you've got a, a, a very cool climate. <laughs> so that's very different. And um, different designs and technologies work better in the different climates. So another thing is to think about, well, what percentage of the stock is, say, apartments and what is, you know, single-storey dwellings or two-storey dwellings. There are statistics through the census data of, you know, what the stock is, so you could possibly look at that. But because you have, as I say, all these hundreds of thousands of individual or groups of owners that have various knowledge and capacity, we've looked in the past at um, the carrot or the stick. So, you know, do you sort of try and entice people that, you know, if you want to, say, get some solar panels on your roof, you can get a 20% discount if you do it between this time and that time? Do energy bills go up so high, the stick, that people think, well, I've, I've got to do something, I've got to insulate or put some solar panels on my house because it's just impossible? Going back to what you were saying about who do we target, one, one of the projects that we're currently putting a proposal together for is a, a smart home energy efficiency uh, retrofit. And again, it's sort of looking at whether we can use technology to help people get more energy efficiency out of their retrofit measures. But we're particularly looking at um, older Australians, so people whose um, income may be fixed energy bills are going up and you know there's some evidence that for some people it's literally heating or eating you know and that's a very stark stark choice for people you know in what should is of you know a very rich country really if they're faced with eating or heating then they're not going to have the money available in order to retrofit their houses. Yeah. So true. then that comes down to, okay, is that a government-sponsored yeah. program? And I guess, too, when we first met, you know, mid-2019, as you mentioned earlier, you know, you told us then that we had 11 years in which to take sufficient action to stop irreversible climate change, and now we've got like eight left, <laughs> a little bit yeah. less, actually. Um, is 
that sort of initiative going to move the dial enough? And if not, what else should we, yeah. we be doing? Well, I think, I mean, it's interesting. I was having to think about, you know, what's happened since 2019 and um, it's been an unbelievable three years. <laughs> <laughs> it has. You know, nobody could have forecast uh, what happened. And I yep. think we definitely had a sea change in that um, there is, much more acceptance of climate change and the need to take action at a federal level a change of government recently um, yep. at the state level at the local government level so the the policy makers in Australia but also globally very much more now likely to want to take action we've also obviously with the global pandemic you know we had lockdown and we weren't able to travel overseas and a lot of carbon emissions come from air travel and transport so ironically what we may see if we look at the records for say 2020 2021 you might find that global emissions actually dipped because of those restrictions but of course now we're probably going back even harder because we haven't seen family overseas for two or three years and those sorts of things what i see especially in the commercial property sector in the business sector people are accepting climate change now and they're taking action so businesses uh, you know the ESG component, if you like, they're they're very much you know on the front foot. And in fact, I argued that businesses, business community, is more progressive than our governments have been in this and other um, issues. But also, you got to look at the way in which we voted in the last election as well. And so you could say well, we've got a more progressive government in place who's always been more likely to to look at climate change issues versus the previous government. Even in, in I thought it was a classic in Brisbane, the two of the seats in Brisbane went from Liberals to Greens. I mean, totally yeah. <laughs> bypassed yeah. Labor. Yeah. Um, yeah. And now, you know, the, with the Teal movement and whatever else, I mean, that's a reflection of people people seeing yes. the need and then obviously the government feels like it has a mandate now to actually start acting on this the, you know and and as i said the business community i think has led this in many ways and so you can sort of see that if the if they've got to like a, a listed company has to have you know clear scg policy yeah. and and all the rest of it and and factoring in a higher rent for that is part yeah. of the whole policy right their whole program Whereas individuals are yet to, I still think, you know, that there's a resistance for individuals, like you say, those tens of thousands yeah. of people or actually 10 million households to move yeah. the dial. I guess that's the big thing, isn't it? How how does this get some traction in the resi yeah. space? I, I actually think probably it would go around value if if there's more and more evidence that um, housing with energy efficiency measures, water efficiency measures, renewable energy, if they are getting a premium, then other people will say, well, we've got to do that so that we maximise the value. Because for most people, it's the biggest asset they'll ever own. And so um, investing in measures that not only immediately reduce their water bills or their energy bills and make the home more comfortable, but also then translate into perhaps a, a faster sale or and a higher value at the point of sale is going to be attractive. And it could be, why don't we approach some of the lenders, you know, the, the banks and uh, look at whether they're prepared to allow us to remortgage a bit 
retrofit these energy efficiency measures because you know ultimately they're the ones that lend the money so if anything goes wrong they could end up with that asset so if they've got an asset that's more marketable because it's got these sustainability features that could be good for them but also it would enable people then to not have to save up for the solar panels or the um, secondary glazing or you know new double glazing or whatever get the benefit of greater comfort lower bills instead of paying the higher bills they're perhaps paying off a little bit more on their mortgage so with the book because i know that you had a multidisciplined approach to this book which i guess reflects all the complexity of all the different stakeholders involved in these one thing that pops in my mind when you're saying that but we've got a supply issue you know we've got a trades a shortage of trades we've got builders building companies going out of business because Mm. basically of of the profitless boom and uh, various other things yeah and then you've got um yeah material shortages like is that going to get in the way of of being able to make any noticeable change in this area (laughs) definitely for some projects and some people and you know there may be some benefits in that because it may be that it it breaks that well this is how we always have done it in the past so let's do that again because we haven't got that so we might have to search around for something different be beneficial again when we looked at our sort of our manifesto for the future with mm. as i say education was one it was also engaging with the professional bodies and the practitioners so that to make sure that they've got all of the information they need to advise their clients and make informed decisions because again if we've been teaching sustainability in a university sector for 10 years 15 years or whatever it's only a certain proportion of the professionals out there in industry that have had that knowledge when they were young and hopefully impressionable (laughs) (laughs) And typically what tends to happen is if you get a new project and it might be renovation, retrofitting or whatever, you'll go back to your last project. And if that worked, you'll you'll say, okay, well, what worked well in Burke Street or Kent Street? Let's have a look at that and we'll we'll more or less do the same, you know, and they might change little bits, but essentially it will be the same. So it was practitioners, it was policymakers, again, which we've sort of touched on, and whether incentives or punitives, (laughs) yeah, which is is a bit harsh. And again, challenge when people are trying to be elected, you know, if you do something that's not popular because it hurts people, you're unlikely to get a second term. Extends to a lot of the problems in in, in the way in which our country is governed. (laughs) Yes. It's true that in New South Wales, though, they, they all new buildings have to be seven star, but also if you're spending more than 50000 on a renovation, you have to, do you have to basically make the whole house seven star? Like there, there was some sort of talk around some policy that they're going to make it also for renovations, not just new builds. Is, right. Is... Yeah. I mean, I'll have to be honest with you. I'm not, I haven't got the inside scoop on that. And yeah. um, I know that in other countries, they've had those you know, those sort of schemes. And again, sometimes, yeah, there are a certain amount of people that say, okay, fair enough, and they embrace that and they'll do those measures. And then there are others who sort of, um, whether it's because financially it's a bit more of a marginal call for them, they'll say, no, okay, well, forget that. We'll we'll just go below that threshold so we don't have to do it, you know. And then (laughs) 
<laughs> That'd be cynical, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's always, um, you know, that's the trouble I think with policy making is there's always a way around it and out of it. And uh, actually, one of the other things I was going to mention when we were chatting earlier, say um, Grenfell Tower. Do you remember that uh, block of uh, apartments in London that burned down sort of, I think it was 2019, and they'd retrofitted um, a cladding system to that. So the intention there was to improve the thermal performance of the buildings, make it more energy efficient. It was social housing. So I'm sure all of the people involved with that were really well-intentioned but hadn't realised that this new material, the cladding, was actually flammable. And, of course, it was probably a one in a million chance of that happening, and it did happen, and it spread so quickly. Some of the problems you have, especially with new technologies, is um, having proof of concept and confidence in the community that these things actually work well. It's interesting, even like uh, banning the plastic bag at sort of the supermarket and things like that, like even then you can sort of pay for a bag, right? And a lot of people still put pay for the bags, right? And they, <laughs> so consumers, you know, unless they're really forced, if you literally cannot get a plastic bag, then they'll make that change, right? Do you think yeah. a lot of this, you know, we need to ultimately force society, you know, through auditing the buildings and saying, look, yeah. you guys are anyone under a three out of 10 energy efficiency, like a fire system in an apartment, you know, like it's just non-compliance, right? And if yeah. you do that, basically force these stratas to, and maybe they can get access to funding. Like I know there's a lot of work with, with banks wanting to, um, the person who's, you know, making their building more energy efficient is probably maintaining their building as well. Mm. Um, and so there is a correlation there. There's green loans with banks. I know there's, mm. you know, multiple fintechs that are trying this sort of thing. Do you honestly, do you think that's once you force people to a certain level of compliance, that's only when you'll start to see these things happen on scale? Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's, it is interesting. I mean, uh, as I say, I did a project a few years ago looking at voluntary or mandatory approaches to green roofs, retrofitting green roofs uh, on buildings. And prior to doing the project, I just thought it's going to be mandatory. Once it's mandatory, that'll be it'll be a no-brainer. If you're building, if your roof is a certain size, it's got to be a green roof. And we looked at London. Amsterdam, no, sorry, Rotterdam, Toronto, uh, Singapore, and Melbourne and Sydney. And we looked at the uptake of green roofs, and those cities had a variety of approaches. Some were voluntary and some were mandatory. And as I say, I just thought the mandatory was going to be the out-and-out winner. But it wasn't. It was the voluntary. Oh. But, but the voluntary was Singapore. Oh, now, in Singapore, voluntary is entirely would you like voluntary. to do that. Oh, yes, I'd like to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's de facto mandatory. So, um, but what yeah. about if you took Singapore out? What, what does that do to the Yeah, data? then it would probably have gone back to the mandatory, to be honest. Um, and again, it's interesting because, um, in some cases, there was a bit of evidence that some owners had decided to um, change their design over what they would have done previously to get the roof size below the mandatory trigger you're always going to get that you know unfortunately do you think we should um target the investors i mean um 
investors pretty much always get the short straw, but wouldn't it be, you know, they have to do fire alarms, we have to do um, yeah. energy techs. There's all these yeah. other mandatory items. You could go through property yeah. managers to basically say that this building needs to be energy efficient for the person renting it and to cut their energy bills. Yeah. And then your cost is tax deductible. And, and you know, it's, it's an easy sort of avenue to target. And then once we sort of see success there, we can see. And they're also very yeah. much inclined to the property price value, right? Yeah. Um, if they can see that they can spend 10000 tax deductible, but it'll increase their sale price. And then maybe some type of labelling, right? So your building yeah. is now, you know, and on domain yeah. or something like that. Like yeah. it's, it's very clear that this building is a certain energy efficiency and it's been checked off. Like, is that sort of the avenue that some of your research looked at? Yeah. I mean, as I say, with the residential stuff, I'd, I've just looked at the the new build and the evidence, whether there was a premium. Yeah. Um, I've Actually, I've also just finishing a project up with a Swedish university and we looked at willingness to pay for green infrastructure and again the green walls green roofs because with green infrastructure there's potentially what they call the biophilia effect which is this sense of calmness that we get around nature and plants yep. and what have you but also it's another thermal layer so it reduces energy consumption it can act as a bit of a sponge for rainwater habitat for biodiversity so there are those primary and secondary benefits um, that they get it was interesting in the surveys and the interviews you know some people were saying that the super green options we gave them five different scenarios from one that was very neat and spartan very little green to, to one that was green roofs, green walls waterfalls you know like a jungle and uh, you know some people were sort of commenting on the amount of maintenance and they saw that as a negative. It's quite interesting. It's their, it would be their knowledge and understanding. And if they didn't know all of those benefits that the green roof and green infrastructure could bring, they wouldn't appreciate it. So it goes back to education, doesn't it? But I've been yeah. wondering, you talked about that um, research you did about the development in Western Sydney where there was a 7% uh, premium paid for the green um, housing or the green features but at the same time it's a redevelopment of a golf course yes um, which had established trees and landscaping yeah. could you separate out the premium they might have paid for that versus the that's the interesting thing is that um, whilst I think the house the housing had this ground source heat pump technology that was meant that their energy bills were a lot lower and they were very good performance thermally. I think it was also the fact that um, there were bike paths and walking mm. paths, there were ponds and lakes that they could go and sit around and the developer's sales suite was converted into a cafe at the end of the development. So there was a a base where the community could meet. It's interesting because I think green space with COVID, when we were locked down, the only place we could go to the park was to the park to walk the dog. And I think a lot of people actually met neighbours that they'd never knew existed prior to COVID because you just got up, you know, jumped on the bus or on the train and went off to work. 
and uh, came back in the evening. But I think we got a much higher appreciation of community space and outside space as a result of COVID. I mean, the other thing um, with the commercial sector, and this is another project that we've got on the go at the moment with the City of Sydney, is um, the work from home model really got embedded. Population has changed because we didn't get the migrants. We were locked down. A lot of people retired during this time. So it's also become an employee's job market. And so employers are not in the position where they can say, right, you got to, I expect you to be in the office Monday to Friday, nine to five now, because they'll just say, well, okay, I, I'm, I'll be looking for another job. And they know they're going to get one fairly soon where they can go into the office two days a week or maybe three days a week. And so what we've got now is a lot of under-occupied buildings. And with the commercial buildings, unfortunately, because of the way the services are designed, you know, you've got to have them working at a certain level, otherwise they clog up and cease to function. So you're using all this energy to cool empty spaces or heat empty spaces or underused spaces. So and that it's a new problem. Yeah. I often wonder, I still like, I'm astounded at the amount of city buildings with lights on at night. You know, you've got the earth hour in March, mm. isn't it? One hour or one night of the year or whatever it is where everyone turns their lights off. But like, yeah. seriously, or then then you've got to look at also our, our vivid and, and, you know, in Sydney, obviously that's a, it's a beautiful thing to see the whole city light up in the middle of yeah. June, but you've also got to be thinking, hang on a minute, um, how is this powered? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Power surges in the middle of last vivid because it was so freezing and everyone was problems with uh, electricity supply and heating. We were asked to turn our heaters off and the lights were on. (laughs) There's, there's, you know, there's a bit of hypocrisy or is it hypocrisy or incongruence, I guess, in what we see from our governments in particular and, and what we're observe or you know what we see what we expect from ourselves it's really interesting i think um especially with the commercial market at the moment and the retail market you know then if you go in i was in melbourne last week you know uh it's exactly the same there the number of vacant retail shops at street level that historically you'd never see that sort of vacancy they would have been snapped up And it's because they haven't got the volume of people coming into the offices for the shops and the cafes and the bars. And a lot of people have got used to shopping online, so they don't want to go back to walking around a shop anymore. So we've had a lot of um, social change as well in the last three years. It's going to be interesting to see how we adjust to that. I mean, I'm trying to take a positive view and saying, okay, well, there's an opportunity now because startups, innovators, arts, um, organisations that would never have previously got a look in in the city centre may now be able to have some short-term use of spaces. But again, what we don't want to do is have, you know, fit outs that then just get put into landfill, you know, and somebody's using a space for six months and, you know, then it's all stripped out. We've got to do it in a way that um, enables us to reuse things. I I was in the 
City of Melbourne offices last week and uh, we were talking about this and I the day before I'd been in another office which used a really eclectic design so none of the tables and desks matched none of the chairs matched they were, the filing systems were all different and I said to the City of Sydney I said oh City of Melbourne and I said look all your chairs are red every single chair in this open plan office is red if I bring in a blue chair it's going to look really odd <laughs> whereas when everything is different we can bring in spotted chairs purple chairs armchairs you know stools or whatever and it's all part of that eclectic design so in terms of circular economy and reusing things it becomes much easier but i imagine there's only certain environments are going to you know rise up and say oh that fits my corporate id and we we can do that <laughs> yes yeah yeah no it is it's it's a very interesting time and uh, there's been a sea change um at the big end of town there's been a sea change in a lot of government levels now so i think there's going to be more action it's just sort of working out what they target how effective that is over the next eight years have you thought about um apprehension to sort of do the investment if you could get a better bang for buck in the future i mean you think about solar panels right the the amount of panels you need on your roof to get the same amount of energy you know, that's been decreasing per year, right? You get it more, you know, the, the technology is improving. And a lot of people are saying, well, why would I buy that now if I can get, you know, a much better option in a couple of years? You think about batteries, like the the Tesla power walls and things like that. Yeah. Like people are very apprehensive on paying, you know, seven, ten thousand dollars for a power wall if they think they can get a, you know, a cheaper one in two years' time that does, you know, has yeah. double the yeah, but then yeah. I've chatting to friends yeah. where, you know, that 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 maybe we've already hit that bottom, right? Because the cost of the the materials or the commodities to yeah. build them is going up. So how does that all play into it? Like people just sort of yeah. sitting back and saying, Well, I'm not gonna do it now. I'm not gonna buy an EV car now. Yeah. Because I know in five years' time they'll be half the price and yeah. bigger batteries and better range. Yeah, so there is all, all of it? that. Yeah, they they have this um, curve that goes. Uh, there's yeah. the early adopters, and so that's uh, you know a small proportion that are financially able to you know do that and say, hey guys, look at my EV. You know, I can spend eighty thousand on this. You know, beautiful electric car. And then right at the other end, you've got the laggards which again is a, a small number but once you kind of hit a reasonable threshold then there's usually a rush to adopt those things and uh, you know hopefully with the renewables we're getting towards the upswing of that curve in terms of the the solar panels and um, those sorts of things i mean hugely expensive that they once yeah. used to be. Mm. And obviously with the energy bills going up, that makes the payback period much quicker. And as I say, if you've got a little bit of evidence that, especially now, I mean, we had um, a, a housing market that was so red hot that any, anything was selling, you know, mm. and there would be queues of people waiting to go into viewings and it was all very competitive. That market has now, you know, cooled down an awful lot. People are perhaps going to have to work a bit harder to make their property stand out from the next property. Lower running costs and more sustainability might appeal to more people. So who is the audience for your book? Is it a textbook? Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a textbook. It's um, So it's students. Um, they would be students of sort of property, property development, uh, real estate, property management. 
so that um, they would sort of understand the the rationale behind sustainable retrofits and how you can you know reduce your environmental footprint or impact with the commercial market it's about sort of protecting your asset minimizing your risk because if all of a sudden the pension firms say right well we won't invest in anything that doesn't have a star rating and as we've said you know we've got so many existing buildings that predate star ratings so if we can retrofit them and they get a retrofitted rating for energy performance water performance that's likely to make it more attractive to tenants so you're likely to get more occupancy if occupancy dips below a certain percentage that starts to affect the capital value of the building so the owners want to make sure that they've got certain number of tenants in the building to you know, protect its value. And if the tenants are asking for renewables, because it then helps them in their business say to their clients, well, look, we're in this um, sustainable building on Kent Street, <laughs> you know, has a, a virtuous circle, if you yeah. like. Yeah. So you're really trying to create the awareness from the ground up, really. So send these little disciples, <laughs> new yeah. graduates out there into the industry. Hopefully they get listened to. Hopefully there's receptive yeah. ears amongst the employers, and then yeah, yeah. No, I mean it is. It, it's uh, and it is really gratifying actually. Yeah, um, with this uh, star toolkit project that we're doing, the sustainable temporary adaptive reuse, um, been sort of reaching out. And uh, whilst we initially started it in Sydney, and it's funded by the City of Sydney, we're sort of communicating to a bigger group of stakeholders. And there was a person who works in sort of innovation at Jones Lang LaSalle, big property professional company down in Melbourne. And she said, I was one of your students. <laughs> and that's just fabulous. You know, you like, oh, fantastic and you're actually doing this yeah you know. yeah can we do this at a council level like i mean you're in melbourne right melbourne's seen as a bit more sustainable than other parts of the country <laughs> or, or at least yeah. um, that sort of like-minded um is there any councils that you know in australia where have mandated and said look we are going to audit houses yeah. or we're going to charge a much lower council rate if you go through this process um then almost everyone in the community yeah. is like doing that as well. And then obviously yeah. if your neighbor's done it, you're gonna, oh, I feel I feel guilty because I haven't done it. Um yeah. you know, are we able to and then show the benefits that that community has a, yeah. a desire? Is that has that happened or is that that's a, that's a very good uh, question actually. I'm not aware of any I mean I'm aware of a, a lot of councils that are embracing sustainability and trying to deliver as much sustainability as they can within the resources that they've got. But again, you know, obviously the funding for councils is, you know, often uh, quite challenging. And I know that City of Melbourne and City of Sydney have, you know, tried to um, demonstrate by example CH2, the sustainable office building that they've got down in Melbourne, meant to be an exemplar and showing that they were walking the talk sort of thing. I haven't heard of any councils that have given a discount on people's rates for sustainability measures. Again, imagine it being like, you know, that neighbourhood watch, right? You, yeah. If you're a safe house, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, a, yeah, it's an interesting thing because if, say, for example, you get a discount if you've got solar panels or water tanks or whatever, I, I went ahead and did that and I 
applied for my discount and then uh, um, I stripped them off or I didn't actually connect them up or something. The cost of the council sending somebody out to inspect mm. and check, you know, might actually actually end up being prohibitive, unfortunately. So even talking about the water tanks, like, you know, I was thinking the other day, I've started using full flush of the toilet every time because I want to do my bit to actually lower the dam level right yeah. at the minute. So, <laughs> yes. you know, that's just my bit. And yeah. Slightly uh, facetious, tongue in cheek there, but I did notice that Sydney Water have, have got these pop up pools in Western Sydney over oh. summer. And I wondered, Ooh. and I don't know whether this is a very creative way in which for them to get some serious water out of Warragamba Dam or not, I don't know. Uh, yeah. And even whether it's enough to put a dint in it. But yeah. I just thought it was a very interesting initiative um, yeah. to, to you know, it's very socially. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't want a pop-up pool? In- <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that I think is really interesting because, um, you know, what we had is obviously black summer bushfires 2019-2020, mm. global pandemic, and then three Once. lots of La Nina. <laughs> yeah, so we've got, you know, and they've been saying to us that the weather patterns are going to become more intense. And obviously the last sort of few years has definitely experienced that. One of the projects, another project I'm working on is a, a bushfire retrofit toolkit, which, and again, it's focusing on older Australians. And uh, so it's trying to look at all the different types of housing that you might have, the different retrofit measures that would suit that then thinking about the financial cir- circumstances of older australians maybe you know limited pension or whatever whether you can again go to the mortgage companies and try and get some sort of reverse mortgage sort of thing going whereby they might not even repay until the property is sold or the person sort of passes away and then you can deduct that but I mean, we were looking, I think I came across one example of it. somebody's insurance costs were $84,000. Wow. is an incentive. Yeah. If you can I mean, mitigate it. <laughs> yeah. And again, increasing numbers of buildings are becoming uninsurable by the insurance mm-hmm. council because they're, they're either in floodplains or bushfire prone areas. And the insurers are just saying, well, we can't afford to do this. Yeah. You know? And so we definitely need to focus on retrofit measures that you know make places safe for people and um, you know this uh, winter and spring has certainly uh, brought that home big time. Uh, do, do you think there's an issue where you know certain Australians or certain say older Australians for example um, they've lived in their homes for 30-40 years and you know at some point they're going to pass on and you know, their homes are probably most likely going to get knocked down, you know. So they're very much, they're, they're cash tight, but yeah. they know when they do pass away that the home's probably going to go to a developer or it's going to go to someone knocking it down and putting yeah. a home on it. Like, they're, yes, there's potentially wins in terms of lowering their energy and gas bill, but maybe that money's just going to be wasted. It's going to create additional stuff that you're just going to knock down anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe mm-hmm. they should be almost like exempt. But, you know, yeah. you almost yeah, go through yeah. a process <laughs> where you look at the housing stock and you say, right, 
unless you qualify for this bucket and you can prove yeah. it, then you have to update. So you're a family and you, you basically have to make a choice, you know? And so do you think that that's the, the way is, yeah, see the vulnerable people and the vulnerable people who can't afford it but are going to live in the properties, maybe they get the incentives. Like you sort of got to look at it as a bit of a... Yeah. I think, I mean, the other thing, of course, which we haven't discussed is the amount of rental properties. You know, you've got a split incentive in the... Why would I spend thousands of dollars retrofitting all these energy efficiency measures that I don't benefit from? You might benefit possibly if you can write them off on your tax or whatever. But that's what we find is typically a lot of the rental stock is the poorest quality because there's just no incentive for the owners to do things that other people benefit from. So the New South Wales government did bring in an initiative on this at the end of 2020, I think it was, and it was targeted at that lower income um, segment of the market, which has probably yeah. all been converted into Airbnbs now anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, but what yeah. make me laugh is like, I get why they were targeting that end of the market, but that is the type of landlord, the least likely to yeah. invest in the property, yeah. you know. So it's like, you know, and even it's funny because off the record people I spoke to about it who weren't willing to sort of be vocal about this were saying, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. I mean, basically this is yeah. just going to fall over. And I, I don't know what happened even with the with the, the program because I just can't imagine that it had a huge success rate. A lot of misguided initiative and yeah. policy at government level, I guess, that that's trying to, I guess it's trying to wear too many hats, trying to be socially aware, trying to, you know, it's trying to yeah. do too many jobs and it's actually yeah. falling well short of, of, yeah. of having any impact on any level. Yeah. I mean, and interestingly, sort of speaking about sort of government and what have you, the um, my next meeting this afternoon, I'm uh, on a project team. We're working with the um, Indonesian government, right, who are relocating their city from Jakarta, all their government offices oh, yeah. from Jakarta, because of climate change, because the, the water level is rising and they've made that strategic decision to vacate all of their office buildings and relocate their government to a new city. And we're looking at what we can possibly do with the existing buildings. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of basement pools. <laughs> Might be able to get some fish farms in there. <laughs> I remember when we last spoke, you were talking about potentially turning underground car parks into into hydroponic farms. So, well, exactly, exactly. And again, I mean, that's possibly some of the things we might also do with some of the um, the buildings in the city centre. Again, sort of urban food production, the carbon food miles, and um, yeah, it could be something that some visitors to the city might find, you know, really funky that you go and get something that's grown in the CBD. <laughs> awesome, Sarah. I think there's, um, I mean, I think the chat's really important because it is something that's moving target. You know, we are moving uh, and it's obviously slower than everyone would like. Um, mm. But, you know, my my gut is it still needs to be sort of government driven. I'm probably very much that that mind. Yeah. You need to force people to make these changes. You make it non-compliant and, um, yeah, and then, yeah. you know, you start to really... If we do that on a scale and maybe we get the low-hanging fruit first, maybe we yep. do, unfortunately, target the investors or we target a certain subset or, you know, maybe it's yeah. councils showing, you know, some initiative, maybe yeah. some sustainable councils. And so 
I think it's one of those things we're just going to have to watch this space and, and do yeah. what we can on an individual level and hope that society catches up. But um, Yeah, I think, like you say, it's a combination of a number of different sort of strategies at different scales and um, hopefully uh, they, they work as intended and um, there's enough offerings that if the market shifts in one direction and something comes less attractive, other ones um, sort of take take that place. But uh, as I say, I think um, the mind shift has happened now with sustainability. I don't get people come up to me at conferences now and say, oh, you're the earth biscuit. Which I had. And it's like, yeah, I quite like earth. I I haven't found anywhere else to live, you know. I did think one of the interesting things with with cars, so there's this um, change of, you know, you don't need to get a battery on your wall if you get a car that can be that battery. And, yeah. um, you know, not all car providers provide this like bi-directional sort of charging. Mm. But, you know, that, that means you can have your solar panels on the roof that, you know, charge your car yeah. during the day when you're not using much electricity. Yeah. And, you know, then you live off your car at night. And and so that, that to me is a bit of a game changer, right? So these, you know, and then the Labor brought out this policy that's gone through government last week where people who can get car leases through work that are using them for private use the company doesn't have to pay fbt um yeah which oh, is wow. a huge game changer right yeah. so you know you can basically provide a government uh, a company car for personal use um and you know so so there's there's all these sort of you know different policies etc i guess it's just the awareness around what's going to work for you and, and getting consumers to take action when there's so many other things in the world that are more fun to think about <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's right i mean but i think as i say i think um you know a, a lot of people are sort of realizing that um, it is important and uh, like you say i think probably actually if it featured on some of these home shows that they do on tv <laughs> yeah. well there was going to be one on on this, I don't know what happened to it. Uh, the the producers actually were talking to me about it a couple of years ago, and and it was um, it was a, a competition effectively between a knockdown or the refit. Yeah. And the idea was, you know, that two lots of experts would be pitching their solutions, yeah. and it's all around sustainability and you know reducing the carbon footprint and what was the best yeah. solution for in real time scenarios. Yeah. But I don't know what happened. <laughs> Doesn't probably have ever hit the airways. Yeah, probably lockdown killed it, and they couldn't actually get people out. But weirdly <laughs> enough, they spoke to me at the uh, was probably at the end of 2020. So they were they were very much you know wanting to you know they were aware of lockdown at the time. There's too much glamour around the property shows. That's we could do another whole podcast on that actually at the moment because <laughs> I, I really feel they're, they're setting expectations around property professionals at the totally the wrong. They're setting the bar very low. Put it that way. I don't think there's a look in for sustainability as part of the conversation. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the thing is I think um, societal expectations have have really changed in that um, the games room, we've got this room, that room, everyone's got their own ensuite and what have you, whereas when you look at some of the um, Victorian interwar, postwar buildings, they're so modest in room size and dimensions. Outside bathroom. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Very different world. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been a really interesting chat. It is an important chat and um, we really appreciate you coming along and sharing this, this, uh, you know, just some of the latest thinking with us. Yeah, my pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. (laughs)
Right. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.